We started a series last week that's going to end next week called One, because change has to start somewhere. And we we talked about this idea um, last week, the, the power of one, that that God uses people to do great things in this world, and he uses one person. Um, that, that change has to begin and start inside of us. Um, that if we truly want to make a difference in this world, then we have to open up our lives to God's change in us. But here's the thing, is that none of that will take place if we don't have a sense of value of ourselves and of other people. And that's what we're talking about today, the value of one. We live in a world that just doesn't value people the way it should. Or the way that God asks us to, if you think about it. We, uh, we live in a fragmented society. I mean, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, everybody who lived in a neighborhood knew who their neighbors were, right? You knew their names, you knew their families, you knew their kids, you knew when their family was coming in town, you had, you know, barbecues together. I mean, you're lucky nowadays to know the person that lives directly next door to you. I mean, we just don't know people. We live in a fragmented world. We live in a place where people are often neglected and not pursued. We're more separated and disjointed. And here's the thing is that the church can be different. We can be different. We can be a community. We can be a place that cares about people, that takes care of people, that, 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 that really believes that people matter and that they are noticed but it all starts with value it starts with how we see people and do we truly value people the the world has a messed up way of valuing people it really does if you think about it the world values people by the way that you look if you look at your sermon notes you can follow along with me Your appearance, I mean, if you have the right face or the right waistline or the the right looks or the right hair, whatever it is, that if you have that going for you, then you're more valuable than someone else. In the 60s, um, for those of you that were around then, you may remember this, um, but in the 60s, there was a serial killer um, in the Chicago area that was targeting nurses, and, and in one night, he killed eight nurses. And and as reporters reporting on that, I was reading an article this week that one of the reporters on TV said, what makes this great tragedy even worse is that these were all attractive women. I mean, how ridiculous is that? That this person felt like this was a greater tragedy because these women looked like what he thought was a tra- like as if someone that wasn't beautiful, that their life was worth less. I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's the way the world values people. But but your value, it's not based in what you look like. It's just simply not. Your value is not based in what you know. For some reason, we have this idea that if you have attain a certain level of degree or knowledge, or if you have something that you can tell someone, that you're worth more than somebody else, that your value, that your opinion is rated higher, and it's because of what you know. It's just simply not true, though. Your value is in what you have, in your possessions. We live in a society that says, get all you can, pursue, grab, hoard, you know, make a name, a worth, you know, it may determine your net worth, but it doesn't determine your, your value. Your value is not in what you have. And the value is not in what you do. You know, we have this idea that if you have 
a certain profession or that serves people, a doctor, a surgeon, a, a counselor or whatever, dot, 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 that, that, that you're worth more to society than someone who just cuts hair or works at a grocery store or whatever. And it's just simply not true. Your value is not found in what, in what you do. So where is your value found? Where do we find our value, your value? And if it's our value, then it's in other people's value also. Here's just a few thoughts for you this morning about this idea of where we attain our value. And the first one is this, is that your value isn't found, your value is found in who you are. And you're a child of God. Your value is found in who you are. And you're a child of God. Probably one of my, I consider one of my life verses, you hear me talk about it all the time, is Ephesians 1, 4, and 6. And I just want to read it to you and let the truth of this passage sink down deep. It says, even before, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So before he created the world, before all this was in motion, God chose to love you, being a person, you. He chose to love you in Christ and declare you holy and without fault. The scripture says God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. I mean, think about that. Think about the adoption process, right? I mean, how many of you are familiar with the adoption process? Anybody know how it goes? The adoption process, it looks like this. So so a husband and a wife or a couple, they get together and they go to an adoption agency and the adoption agency, you know, takes their money because you have to, for some reason, you have to pay for a kid to adopt them. I don't understand that, but that's part of the process, right? So you put in this money and, and the kid, they, they round up all these kids and they put them in a big room in front of this couple and they, and they, they, they set up some stations. Right? Like in one station, there's a table with like some, some, some projects for them to do and some math problems and some IQ tests, right? And the kids have to work. And you're up in this booth and you're watching all of this, right? And then there's another area where kids are interacting together and you're kind of getting to watch how they treat each other and, you know, socially. Are they like, you know, are they leaders? Or are they followers? And you gotta get to assess all of that and, And then there's this other room where they have all of these physical demanding exercises and they make kids do push-ups, right? And they make kids do crunches and sit-ups and they put boxing gloves on them and they make them duke it out. And, you know, and it's kind of like a a Hunger Games, whichever's the last kid standing gets bonus points. And, And you raid all these kids together and then the kid who assembles the highest points is the kid that you adopt, Right? Yes? No! I mean, if you think about it, that is like a ridiculous scenario. I mean, who would do that? Who would look at these kids that need love and say, find me the kid that has the most likely, you know, the, 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 the most likely to be able to provide for me when I get old so that I can retire and they're like surgeons and, you know, I don't have to work anymore. And that's the kid that I want to adopt. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just not true. How does adoption happen? A couple, a person, says, I have a whole lot of love. Do you have a kid that needs to be loved? 
And then they pour their life and their resources and their energy and their love into this child that so desperately needs it. And that's what the scripture says that the Father has done for you. He says he chose you in advance to adopt into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. The question is, is why? Why did he do it? It's because you're smart? It's because you're incredibly good looking? Is it because of what you have to offer? No. The scripture says because it brought him great pleasure. That's what made him happy. It made him happy to love you. I have some friends that live in North Phoenix, Barry and Felicia Jordan, who three years ago started the process to adopt a child from Ethiopia. And they found an organization there, and they've spent thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to go through this process and to line everything up to adopt this child. And um, in a year and a half ago, a year and a half into the process, a year and a half ago, they were actually paired up with a boy. And I can't remember his name. But I've seen pictures of him. He's just a sweet, he was just a little baby then. And so now he's probably close, he was close to three, I think now. And they're still going through the process. And, and the government, the Ethiopian government, um, a, about a month ago decided to put a halt on all adoptions out of Ethiopia for a certain amount of time because they were afraid that these Ethiopian children were being taken out of Ethiopia and they were they were forgetting their culture and their heritage and they wanted to figure out a way to stop that. And so they've stopped all adoptions of Ethiopian children coming out and coming to the United States. And here's Barry and Felicia. Haven't been able to have children. Have all this love in their heart and in their family. They decided that's not okay. And so Felicia, three months ago, decided to leave America and move to Ethiopia so that she could meet this boy and love on her son that's going to be hers one day and and to fight, you know, not fight the government, but to pursue the government, pursue these people and these ambassadors and these congressmen and these leaders to say, man, I just want to love this kid. She left everything here. She left her husband. Not left left, but but she moved away temporarily from her husband so that she can love her future son. Does that kid have anything to offer her? I mean, I have a five-month-old baby, right? He's a lot of work. (laughs) And he's only five months old. He is wearing his dad and his mom out. And there's a few smiles and a few giggles that just fill my heart. But there's a lot of times I'm just pouring and pouring and giving and giving. And all the th- only thing he's given me is dirty diapers and an occasional laughter, right? An occasional smile. But I do it because it makes me happy. Because he's my son. You see, your value is found in, in who you are. And you're a child of God. Value comes from relationship. I think I put that in your notes. I mean, think about this. If someone kidnapped your husband or your wife or your kid, I mean, you would do anything or give anything to get that kid back. You'd sell your home if you had to. You'd empty your 401k. You would do everything that you could in your power to put all your resources together to get this. I mean, most days, you some, there are some days you'd pay somebody to take your child, but most days, right, you would do anything to get that child back. And that's what God has done for us. What does that say about our value? What does it say about our worth? 
What does it say about the person sitting in front of you or next to you when you realize what God has done to get them, to love them, that they are called a child of his? See, the thing is, is that there are times we may not feel very valuable, right? See, our value, it's found in what God gave for you. It's not just found in who you are, but it's found in what God gave for you. In April of 1996, they had what they called the ultimate garage sale. In uh, April 1996, they auctioned off President Kennedy's memorabilia. And um, and it grossed, that auction, that garage sale, if you will, grossed, grossed $34.5 million. Listen to this. Somebody paid $442,000 for JFK's rocking chair. A fake pearl necklace went for $211,000. A set of golf clubs, and that was just the woods, went for $772,000. 13 pairs of salt shakers sold for 11500 bucks for salt shakers. What were those things worth? What is their value? What's what someone's willing to pay for? I mean, you can go to Walmart and buy salt shakers, you know, two for a dollar, right? Or two for two ninety nine. But these salt shakers, someone was willing to pay $11,000 for. See, value is found in what one, what one is willing to give for it. There's some days when I look in the mirror when I wake up and my hair is all scraggly and my beard's unkept and got the little eye boogers going on and I'm like, man, that's a sad sight. So I feel bad for my wife having to wake up next every day next to this mess. But then I realize what and I remember what God paid for me. And my value is something altogether different. Look at this scripture, Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. This is, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. The scripture says that you were bought with the blood of Jesus. He purchased you with his son. Galatians 3, 26 and 29 says, for you For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. I mean, not only am I a child of God, but you are also, and I get my value from it, and so do you. Even the people we don't get along with, or the people that get on our nerves, or the neighbor who lets their dog mess in our front yard, or whatever it is, those backward people, those frustrating people, those annoying people, whatever. God not only paid for me, but he paid for them that person has immense value to God and so do you. You see, your value is found in what God gave for you. Value is found in, in who you are and you're a child of God. And here's a third thought. Is that your value is found in what God has placed in you. What God has placed in you. 
24-year-old Danny Simpson was sentenced to six years in prison um, for robbing a bank. Danny got six years in jail for stealing $6,000 at gunpoint. Here's the thing. The gun that he used for the robbery ended up in a museum. It was a 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic that turned out to be an antique made in 1918 by the Ross Rifle Company and was sold at auction later for $100,000. Danny used a gun worth $100,000 to rob a bank of $6,000. Pretty crazy, don't you think? If he had known what was in his hands... I mean, there's no telling what Danny's story was like or, you know, what had happened or what side of the tracks or what he needed the money for. We don't know any of those things. But what we do know is what he had in his hand was worth a whole lot. And at any point, he could have sold it for anything that he needed. It's what was in his hands. Have you understand? Do you understand what God has placed in your hands? What God has given you? Look at this scripture I put in your notes, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. The scripture says that God has entrusted in you, has placed in you his spirit, and that gives you great value. Galatians 4, 6, and 7 says, Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. God's presence in you gives you great... He says, you are my child. I have placed myself in you. Just think what you have in store for you. You're an heir to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Think about the gifts that He's placed in your life. Think about the love that He's deposited. Think about His presence. All of those things in you. Would you entrust those things to someone that didn't have great value? No. You have great value because what God has placed in you. Here's a fourth thought. Is that your value is found in what God has entrusted to you. Your value is found in what God has entrusted to you. See, all of us would agree that there's probably nothing more important than sharing about Jesus in this world. Right? I mean, there's nothing more important than telling our kids about Jesus. I have a five-month-old boy, and I think about the day that I'm going to be able to sit across from him and say, Hey, Wesley... Let me tell you about the most important decision you're ever going to make. Let me tell you about my Savior Jesus and how much He loves you. You know, we go to church every Sunday and and Dad talks about this guy. And the reason that he talks about him is because what he's done for this world and what he can do for you in his life. And and I want you, and and I sit there and I plan this out and I think about it. He's only five months old and, and I'm sure it's years down the road and hopefully I'll have it perfected by then. I really don't know. I'm a hot mess. I start crying when I think about it. Because it's the most important story It's the most important thing that I can tell my son is about Jesus. And here's the thing is that God has entrusted that in me and in you. I heard a preacher tell a story one day. I know it's not true, but it's a story how all preachers do. He said there was an angel and God were talking one day. The angel looked at God and he said, God, what's your plan? I mean, what's your plan for the church? What's your plan for Jesus? What's your plan to make the church and the world know about your son? What is your plan? 
What's your plan for the future? And God said, you know, it's, it's these people. I've entrusted the message of my son to these people, to the church. And the angel looked at God and he said, well, what's plan B? If that's your plan, what's plan B? And God said, there is no plan B. It's the plan. And it's true. God entrusted the message of Jesus, of his love and his mercy and grace to a bunch of knuckleheads like me and you. And I say that with love. God has placed the message of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the hope of the world. He's placed into the hands of the church. He's placed into you. He's placed into me. He's placed into us. That's crazy. There is no plan B. That's it. And that gives us great value. Look at the scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-20. This is what Paul writes about this. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I mean, that sentence describes this whole message. That, that we, don't, we, don't, we don't look at people for, through the world's eyes any longer. We look at people through God's eyes. We don't regard them from a worldly point of view, but from a Jesus point of view. He says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So he's saying all of this hope, all of this joy, this restoration, this heaven, this forgiveness, this grace, this mercy, all of this comes through Jesus. Reconciliation, being made right with God, comes through Jesus. And this is what he says. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he looks at us and he says, and I have placed this job in your hands to the church, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of of pouring your life into people and bringing them to Christ so that they can be restored and be made right with the Father. He's placed that in me and in you. He goes on. He says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. He says it again. This is the second time. He's committed to you and to me the ministry of reconciliation, the doing of it, and he's he's placed in us the message of it, that it's our job to do it and also to say it. The message of reconciliation. He goes on. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We, me, you, us, we are God's ambassadors. As if he was making his appeal of his love to this world through us. What value? What God has entrusted in you, the message, the ministry, of reconciliation, of making this world right, he's placed in our hands. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be made right, be reconciled to God. We have this job 
that God has entrusted in us in us to make his name great. It's not only just making people know about Jesus, but it's about helping one another. It's about ministering to each other. It's about caring for one another. Look at the other scripture, Ephesians 4.16. He says, From him, the whole body, joined and held together, this is all of us, by every supporting ligament, we're all supporting ligaments in this, it grows and builds itself, itself in love as each part does its work. As you do your work, as I do my work, as we all do it together, the church is built up and grows in love. It's what the world wants to see. It's what the world is dying to be a part of. People are attracted to that kind of church, to that kind of love. When they walk into a place and people care about them and talk to them and encourage them, when they get involved and, you know, and people are pouring their life into them saying, how can I make your life better? How can you make life, my life better? How can we make this community better? That that type of life, that type of ministry, that's what people want to see. That's what this world is longing and dying for. Because it just doesn't see it anymore. It sees hate and ugliness and just nastiness. But when people really see God's love poured out through the church, they come running. But here's the key. It takes all of us. The scripture says, as each part does its work. You're a bone. I'm a bone. You're a ligament. I'm a muscle. All of us have a place to play and a part to give for his church. Your value is found in what God has entrusted to you. And here's your one last thought. Is that your value is found found in what is waiting for you. When Haley and I first got married in Oklahoma City, throughout the summer we would kind of end our days in walks. And um, we would walk through our neighborhood. And and one day we got this idea to cut across this field because there were some houses that we had seen that we've never walked through. The neighborhood was called Rivendell. It's like if you're Lord of the Rings fans, you know, it's where the elves live, right? Rivendell. And that's what this place was like. I mean, it was like, had tall trees and they were beautiful in these houses. I pulled out my phone and pulled up Zillow. You know, as we'd walk in front of a house, we'd just take a guess. How much do you think that house is worth? And these houses were like a million, million and a half, 950,000. I mean, they were just so out of our league. It was a gated community for a reason, right? I, me and my holy Reeboks, I did not belong in this neighborhood. They had a gate there for a purpose. I mean, it was it was like a high-dollar place that no riffraff allowed, right? They had, you know, one of the guards sitting out front. If you pulled up, you couldn't get in, you turned around. They just weren't letting anybody in. It was, it was prestigious to live in, in Rivendell. Well, there's a gated community. The gates are kind of wide open if you'll just make the move that one day I do get to be a part of. We call it heaven. This is what Jesus said about heaven in John chapter 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is one of his last moments with his disciples. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Paul writes it this way in Philippians. He says, we're citizens of heaven. 
where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for Him to return as Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same power with which He will bring everything under His control. Man, I can't wait for that day. I mean, there are days that I wake up and I roll out of bed and it's like, ugh, man, this hurts. And the Scripture says, no, there's a glorious body waiting for me. There's a God has a plan and a, and a body and a place in heaven that, that, that you, I can't even begin to imagine the health and the life and the joy that we're going to experience there. You know, we live in a perishable body today. I know that. But one day we'll be glorified. And when we understand that, that gives us great value. When we realize what's waiting for us, and what God is waiting to give us, what He's entrusted to us. You see, value is found not in the world's standards, but in God's. Value is found in what He gave for us. Value is found in who we are as a child of His. Value is found in what He's entrusted to us, in what He's placed in us, and what is waiting for us. How might we live differently if we believe that? How might we see people differently? and love people differently, and encourage people differently, if we see, saw them through the eyes that Jesus sees them through. That's our prayer. See, the power of one is released when we understand the value of one. We make a difference in this world when we understand the value that we have and the value that people have.